Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> I'm out to play. Warriors, come out to play. Today we're going to be talking about one of our very, very favorite movies from 1979, The Warriors. Now, we did talk about the Warriors before on an earlier podcast, the podcast of the three movies you must love to date my daughter. And I don't think we talked very much in depth about it, just how great it was. Yeah, maybe a few things. So you might hear some repeats, but also if you're a new listener, then it doesn't even matter. Yeah, you can go really. back and listen to that and you can skip through it if you want to. We just saw this on the big screen at Central Cinema on Capitol Hill in beautiful Seattle, Washington. And just we're moved to start talking about it again. Yeah, we got so excited. I know. Love it, love it, love it. Okay, maybe we should start with the history of our viewing connection. So back in 1979 (laughs) when this movie came out, I was in college, and my friend who I was hanging out with, she had a car. Well, actually, I think I had a car then too, but she drove. And she says, oh, let's go see The Warriors. I said, okay, fine. Now, this is back in the days when there's no VHS, no DVDs, no home video. You had to go to the theater to see a movie or wait for it to come on to the TV when uh, it finally came to the TV. So 1979, she's come and see it. I go, okay. We go to see see the movie, and I'm like, wow, that was fantastic. It was so good. I was living in Akron, Ohio. I was not aware of any gangs. Never saw a gang. I mean, you kind of knew that they were out there, but they seemed to mostly be in New York and California. So I wasn't aware of anything in our town. But I heard about these incidents and this violence that, that were, you know, some killings and uh, people, people beating. People going to the movie theater? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, or I don't think it was in the theater. Yeah. And that was like the first time I'd ever heard of that, really. Wow. Probably, maybe it was the first time it really ever happened. I was trepidatious, especially at that time. I was even much more of a wimp than I am now about violence and... You're pretty hardcore now. You can watch anything. Well, not anything. No, 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 no. I'm sure I won't make that claim, but you you will watch like kind of whatever. You watch some horror stuff. I do, but it can't be too horrible. It can't be too horrible, you know. I haven't seen The Orphanage. Anyway, we digress. Uh, so I went to see it with uh, Diane, was my friend's name. And it was, I just loved it so much that I went back to see it again and to the theater and again and then, you know, went to second run. I think I saw it probably five, six, seven times in the theater. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I know. That's Hello. a lot of times. Hello. Damn. Yeah. And then within the next couple of years, it showed up on college campus at the film festivals and stuff. And I went to see it every time. So I probably saw it maybe 10 times in the in the first three years of it was out. That's how much I loved it. Holy shit. You didn't know yeah. it. But now you've got the home video, so you can just pop it in anytime yeah. <laughs> you want. So in a way, it makes it less special to see something because you can see it anytime you want. But at the same time, it's if you can gauge yourself... It's very satisfying. It doesn't lose its 
impact. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's extra special to see it on the big screen. Yeah, it was. It was great. And we had buttered popcorn, <laughs> butt pop as they call it, <laughs> and we had uh, uh, some some stuff to drink. Oh, at Central Cinema when we watched it. Yeah. Yes. And so that was my history of the Warriors. It's always been with me. It's always been a favorite of mine. People can't seem to believe that a middle-aged woman almost an old woman now, loves the Warriors, but hello. Well, I know, you were hip to it before, long before hello. anybody else was hip to it. Say that. <laughs> so what's your, what's your history with the Warriors? I think you and I watched this movie together when I was middle school or high school. Do you think middle school? I think it was middle school yeah. probably. Because, I mean, there's some violence in it, but it's like, it's not hardcore mm. or anything. No. It's very kind of comic book style and minimal and everything. So, yeah, and it's very simple in terms of its plot, but it's just delicious in its execution. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I think we watched it and I immediately loved it. It was one of, we'd watch a lot of movies together, but Mm -hmm. there were a few that, like, really stood out to me. You know, when I was in middle school, like, Fight Club was definitely one where I was like, oh, shit, this is cool. Yeah. Um, And this was another one. Um, And it's pretty much been my favorite movie ever since. You like things in color and you like things with a lot of action yeah and it took longer for you to to sort of develop the taste for the more um i would i guess you could say slower pace but really more talky yeah. black and whitey old older aesthetic even the noir movies which yeah. you know have plenty of action in them it's just or fast paced you know yeah. it's but they have an older aesthetic digestible yeah. yeah and these are these are just they're like Skittles, man. Yeah. They're delicious. <laughs> delicious and they go down so easy. And the thing about the the Warriors is, first of all, huge kudos to director Walter Hill. He does a terrific job and it holds up today. His direction holds up today, don't you think? Mm-hmm. It's genre and it's got a genre feel in that it's not too slick, not too, the edges aren't too polished. But there's just there's just enough roughness to feel the genre-ness of the, mm-hmm. of the piece without it becoming a Roger Corman movie or something that's really a B movie. This is an A genre movie, mm-hmm. don't you think? Yeah, and I feel like it's perfectly suited, like the form to function mm-hmm. it can be very important. Again, it's a simple premise. It's a pretty simple uh, linear story and everything, but just the, the way that he switches back and forth between different scenes and different the characters. Points of view, yeah. Shows you some things and leaves some things off screen. Right. Well... I, we said this on the other podcast. I know we said it. So, warning, warning, Will Robinson. Redundancy. Will Robinson uh, is that it's very, very important that you watch the original theatrical version of this film. Do not watch the director's cut. Yeah. I know. I think this too. Oh, it's the director's cut. It must be better. It must it be must... more closer to the intended vision. Right, yeah. right. Well, it probably is, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean it's better and more watchable or more enjoyable. The director's cut is okay, but the original vision that Walter Hill had for this, and maybe it was originally from a novel by Saul Urich, The Warriors. And I don't know if it made it into being a graphic novel, but that was the vision of the director, that he would present this, and it was essentially a, a comic strip. And so in the director's version, you get... Like the opening, there's a comic strip kind of panel or a graphic novel panel showing the characters and and then, boom, it goes to live action. So for each act, you've got this comic strip panel, live action, and that really breaks up the fourth wall, first of all, and not in a good way. And it interrupts the flow and the 
the drive of the narrative and the energy of the characters moving through the film. The original theatrical version ended up being the better one, and it's very hard if you go to a video store, of course, nobody goes to a video store anymore, to get a copy or to buy. We, yeah. we wanted to buy a copy and we could not find a copy that was it the original was theatrical. Well, we didn't. Yeah. It wasn't just difficult. It, we didn't. We weren't able. No, we did on eBay eventually. We got a copy of the yeah, original? Yeah, we have a copy. Um, See, she corrects me because I never remember what we own and I end up buying two, three, four copies of the same thing because yeah. I can't remember <laughs> that we have it. But it was tough to... You really, really had to dig. To find one. Yeah. yeah. Or you might be able to find something that has both, which is fine. And I don't I don't want to dissuade anyone from checking out the director's cut, but watch the theatrical version first because that is the best and you will love it more. Mm -hmm. And then when you watch the director's version, it won't bother you so much. Uh, Anyway, so that's our recommendation to you, our warning, because we love you and we want you to have the best experience possible with this movie. We're here to guide you. Help you. Gentle, nurturing, loving, cinematic... Arms. <laughs> Open wide. Right. Okay, so that's number one, right? Walter yeah. Hill, fantastic, did a fantastic job yeah. with that. Uh, and then I think the casting of this film mm-hmm. is great. But let's actually go back to the, the Saul Urich novel before okay. we go on. Have you read it? No, I have not read it. I didn't really want to read it because I know the story. I love it. I love the movie so much. For me, when I love either the novel or the movie so much, I don't even want to see the other version of it in, in another medium because I end up not liking it mm. or being bored by it even because I, oh, I'm i ahead of it. There's been a few instances where that's worked, but I won't go into them here. I feel like that's true, though. Like, a book is supposed to be encapsulated as a book. A movie is intended to convey exactly how much it conveys as a movie and how successful it is uh, makes it good or bad. But, mm. like, that's, like what it's supposed to be and so sometimes getting the book hearing the thoughts of the characters or whatever it can kind of muddy the vision of the film for example something like that well it can but for me it's more if i've read the book often i've got it in my head yeah if i see a movie now i've got it in my eyes yeah and then trying to try uh, do, do we want to get into this discussion right now I don't know. Are we digressing too much? Do you want to move on? The, I don't okay. care. I don't. I just don't want to bore, no. bore our listeners. <laughs> Go on. I mean, our, I think our, this our, is interesting. We're talking about the meta process of enjoying. All right. Media, okay. So. Okay. So for for me, I'm going to liken this to say, The Big Sleep. I watched that movie several times, really, when I was young. So I had I had bogey in my head. I got everybody in my head. It was it was part of me, right? So then I read the novel by Raymond Chandler. And as I read that book, that novel, and luckily, the well, maybe not luckily, but the movie and the book are really very, very, very close in, in uh, the lines. A lot of the lines are the same. A lot of the plot is very, very similar. So I was reading through, and as I was listening to Philip Marlowe speak in the book, I actually heard Bogey's voice saying those lines. That was a lucky circumstance because they did it so right in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then when I read the book, it was just such a perfect me- meshing. But I was a little bit bored mm-hmm. because I knew what was going to happen. I knew the voice. You know, I knew a lot, a lot of the metaphor. A lot of it just. But I read it because I felt that I should. And perfectly fine book. But my opinion is. The movie's better. I like the movie better. And I don't know if that's just because I saw it first 
or because it is better. But that's, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's one experience. Atonement was another one. Book bored the shit out of me because I'd already seen the movie. So that's how it is for me. It's like, it's a redundancy. Now, on the other hand, Laura, a movie we both love, which is in our three movies you must watch to love, to date my daughter. And I'll tell you, you'll want to date this little honey. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're banging down the door for this baby. Um, anyway, Laura, which is a highly recommended, great, great classic movie. I tried reading that book. That book is so completely different. It's a, like a, almost a different book. I didn't, I couldn't read it because it was so different. Yeah. So it's like a no-win situation. And there have been books that I've read, uh, Unbroken, for example, which was uh, recently made into a film. And I think uh, Angelina Jolie directed it. I don't know how, what the critical reception for it was, but there was a lot of, I believe there was some positive reaction. Anyway, I didn't want to see the movie. I will not see the movie because I read that book. I was mesmerized, drawn in to a timeless space while I was reading that book. I don't want to see the movie. Mm -hmm. Life of Pi is the other one. Life of Pi. I I couldn't get you to read that, could could I? Not yet. I tried to start it and I I wasn't engaged, but I was also in the middle of the whimsy novels. Oh, well. Pshaw. Fantastic book. It really is. It keeps being on like the top best book of the century, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of deserving, maybe not the only book that deserves to be there, but it is one of the, it's a fantastic book. Timeless, breathless, thoughtless experience of this book. It was, you know, it was that Zen feeling of being one with the piece you're reading. I love that feeling. And I didn't want to see the movie. Because mm-hmm. there's just no way. I mean, it's it's it would be an insult to Ang Lee and to everyone else uh, who were part of that movie for me to even watch it because I would just sit there and go, yeah, because I couldn't, you can never replicate the experience I had with the book. So when there's a book and a movie comes out, I I very seriously sit there and weigh, should I watch the movie? Should I read the book? Because it's almost certainly going to be one or the other. The one, the one exception are uh, exceptions are those classics like Pride and Prejudice, Wuthering Heights, you know, those, the Tons classics are different. Yeah, yeah the, cl- the classics are somewhat different than that, but these more modern books. Hmm. So anyway, um, what, how did I get off on that? Where, where should we go? Oh, Do you remember where, where we were? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about, um, well, we talked about how great the director of the oh, Warriors yeah, yeah, is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we talked about oh, the Saul Yurik novel. Okay, okay, so... Okay, so if everyone can come with me, we're going to go back down the path we've just been on into the wild woods, and we're going to go back to the main path. Now we're coming back to Saul Uric and the novel, The Warriors, and that novel is based on a Greek book by Xenophon. It's a book. Okay. Well, Not just like a legend. No, 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 no. It's okay. He wrote this. He okay, wrote, okay. He wrote, I mean, it isn't a book in, in as much as it isn't a, it's a scroll. Sure, yeah. <laughs> be Olden a, times. Being, being, being a scroll. Anyway, uh, not a codex, it's a scroll. Anyway, he, Xenophon, a Greek, ancient Greek, he actually was, a, what, a soldier, a farmer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> we're looking at information for this podcast, and, and I, I was looking at the myth page, and I was like, who's Xenophon? And I clicked to the page, and I was just like, fuck, 
every single Greek dude you look up, you click on his page and it's like, he was a philosopher, a poet, a writer, a warrior, a farmer. <laughs> like, just like every fucking thing. A doctor. <laughs> and everything except a loving family man, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and a feminist. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, by the way, if we sound more rambunctious than usual, we're having some wine like we did with our Maltese Falcon yeah. podcast just to ensure the flow. Yeah, the flow, that the flow continues. So exactly. So Xenophon, who is all these things, also a writer. Yeah. He was a soldier, of course. <laughs> and he went off and he went off with, it was the 10,000. And they went off to fight. And what happened was... Wait, hold on. I think it's called Xenophon's Abanasis. Anabasis. Anabasis. Yeah. So it's the Anabasis, and that is FYI, because we're all geeks here. Yeah, and we struggled about this in the last podcast, I think, so now we're, we're going we got it right this time. Retrospectively, we're going to tell you all about the myth, because we looked it up. Yes, so the Anaba- what the word Anabasis means, it means a journey from the shoreline to inner land. That's what Anabasis means. Poetic. Ooh, Isn't it beautiful? He was probably also a poet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so essentially... Um, uh, and you can correct me what, where, wherever I may happen to go wrong, but uh, Saul Yurik's novel was based on Xenophon's Anabasis, and of course the Warriors movie is based on Saul Yurik's novel, so there we go. So basically, it's about a bunch of Greeks. I'm just <laughs> going to boil it right down. And the Greeks and the Persians were always fighting because the, Greek, the Persians were a great empire, a great empire for, for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years and the Greeks were always these kind of scrappy, especially the Spartans, scrappy upstarts, pugnacious, fighting their way. Small country. Small, you know, tiny little city-states, really. Yeah. Get down to it. Kind of always, like, <laughs> got their little fists in the air. So basically, uh, in the Anabasis, Cyrus the Younger is a Persian guy, Persian royal family. And he's going to try to knock his brother off the throne and take over. He brings in a bunch of the Greeks and Persians, too, of course, to fight for him. They're mercenaries to fight, and he goes for it. I I won't get into all the details, but ultimately, it doesn't really work out. And so there's these these 10,000 Greeks, of which Xenophon is a part of the group. They're stuck in the middle of Persia. They're screwed. They've got no basis of supplies. They've got no support. They are really enemy soldiers in the middle of Persia because uh, Cyrus's attempt to take over he was didn't, a usurper yeah yeah it didn't it didn't work so now his soldiers are anathema they are criminals and people are out to get them and they've got to get back to the coast to the sea to get back to Greece there's more to the Anabasis, but not anything that has to do really with our topic today, which is the Warriors. Right. And that is essentially the plot of the Warriors, right? Yeah. Except that it's gangs in New York. So. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have the Atlantic Ocean, kin to the sea. The Black Sea. Yeah. The Black Sea. And we have a charismatic, wonderfully played role of Cyrus, mm-hmm. who is going to try to bring all these gangs together to take over New York City. So Cyrus, of course, Cyrus the Younger, who's the Persian usurper, who's trying to take over the kingdom of Persia. Persia, New York City. Yeah. Da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, and bing, bada-boom, bada-bang, or whatever. 
Um, bada bing, yeah. bada bing. <laughs> so the gangs all send eight representatives to nine. nine to the Bronx um, in order to hear Cyrus speak and then unite and take over the city. Um, and the, I have to just once again, I, I hope you're going to do a clip here yeah. of the actor who plays Cyrus. He's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you dig it? No, it's a, it's a, can you dig it, suckers? If you can count. <laughs> yeah. Our little, and then there's a, our little piece of turf. And he does, and it's just his, his face mouth. and the way his mouth moves and his <laughs> hand gestures is so, yeah. just beautiful oratory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any Greek would have been proud of that oratory, totally. I think. Yeah. yeah. And so what happens is there is a rogue gang. They decide to assassinate Cyrus. Cyrus yeah. falls dead. And the warriors of the title get blamed. Yeah, they, they're pointed out. They're like, oh, I saw them. The warriors assassinated him. They're from Coney Island. And now FYI. they have to bop back all the way to Coney from the Bronx. And with everyone on every side. This peace is suddenly ruptured. The truce. The truce. Yep. To, Everyone's looking for them. To For them, because they're the ones who wasted Cyrus, apparently. So much good slang. Good ass, like, basically 80s, like, late 70s slang in this one. Kind of, maybe even pseudo, pseudo yeah, comic slang. comic book like, I don't know if it was real slang or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very, it could be very they Capricorn. They got to bop on down, soldier on through. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's so good. So uh, one of the one of the uh, okay, I'm going to just go through. I don't think we need to say too much more about the plot if you agree. No. But the elements that come mm-hmm. out. I mean, at the time they were kind of viscerally underworld. Now they just are mm. kind of they're, they're charming. They're they're delightful. The various gangs all. I mean, they, why can't gangs be like this? Right. They're super. Th- Themed. Like, everybody wears the same, like, item or the same piece of clothing, same outfit or whatever. And it's based on a theme. And so, and and what's wonderful in the beginning, um, oh, we won't even go into the music right now, but we'll have to talk. The music is fantastic. So when they're beginning and they've got this great music in the beginning, they're showing the different gangs getting ready to go to this conclave of gangs. And they all are wearing the same thing and they all have various themes. And, of course, the most famous one is the... Baseball fur- furies, right? Right, which are encountered later, of course. But they, yeah, they're wearing like full striped baseball outfits with bats, and their faces are painted like, like bright colors. Well, like clowns, kind of uh, in a way, like well, white and black actually. And they've all got bats, but the, and they're wearing that sort of. If you if you remember in the old days, if you've ever seen old pictures of like Babe Ruth, where it was the old like kind of off-white jersey with a pinstripe and then their knickers Mm -hmm. the little knicker pants oh my god i mean who would wear that i mean it's amazing and then they've got the uh the one that i that makes me laugh now is there's an asian uh gang and they're all wearing sort of peasanty maoist outfits together yeah and you're thinking well yeah maybe they're they're claiming their identity but it's like, yeah, yeah. You're looking at that. It's like amazing. Yeah, like they're the wearing the same things. It's really cool looking. In the, hat, yeah. the hats and oh, it's yeah. love it. And then there's political. The, <laughs> and there's some that are, they're, they're the ones that I often call the mimes. Yeah, and they're kind of got like little top hats yeah. and painted faces. Yeah. And, oh, God. <laughs> can you imagine them running your neighborhood? <laughs> oh my God! It's <laughs> my amazing. favorite, my personal favorite, who the warriors encounter later are the roller skating hillbillies. <laughs> Um, and that's not actually their name. A lot of these, you never hear their name, but they're all like 
country hicks with overalls and roller skates or maybe just the leader roller skates yeah. anyway they're and, all, like, and, and this is be- bubble gum. and fyi this is before roller blades were invented right so there were no roller blades they were wearing those four-wheeled roller skates right yeah <laughs> We watched a movie called Rollerblade that was made before rollerblades were made, and it was just people with roller skates and switchblades, which I just love. Oh, rollerblade! Point that out. Yeah, it wasn't worth talking about because it really it has it's a lot bad. of slow, slow moments and stuff. But like that was the great part about the film. Rollerblade, roller yes. Blade. Anyway, so back to, back to the yeah, and so they they've got these fantastic gangs, and all of these gangs are going to end up. Well, not all of them. We don't see all of them, but we we do see a panoply of them, and then later. A few of them come back as uh, nemesis, nemesis yeah. to the to the warriors. Now, of course, the core gang or the gang that we're following is the warriors. And the most exciting thing about the warriors is that they have these vests. Yeah, yeah, these leather vests, and they say the warriors on the back with like a bald eagle or something. I don't know, but it looks great. It looks great. And they these just, are cl- these are class acts here. A couple of them wear shirts underneath, but most of them just wear them shirtless over their insanely <laughs> fine physiques. Now, in a in the extras that mm. I watched on the DVD that we have, they did say, I think it was the lead actor, Michael Beck, who um, plays the character Swan, who is really the corollary to Xenophon, in terms of Xenophon leading these people, these soldiers back to the sea to save them. So, that actor, he said... They spent hours in the gym every day because none of them are particularly burly guys naturally. Yeah. It's interesting that he cast all of these very slender, lanky, slender uh, men. And so in order to get some muscle definition, they were, apparently they were pumping quite a bit. Wow. But they they look very lovely. And work for a role. and (laughs) And for me. Yeah. At that age, I think I was 21 when I saw this movie. That was the body type I loved. And the hairless. There's one... <laughs> oh, God. There's one warrior. His name is Vermin. Yeah, Vermin. <laughs> he's very... He's he's dark-haired, which is okay. But he's kind of bulky and hairy. Yeah. <laughs> and he wears no shirt. And he's hairy and at that Burt Lancaster and at that, hairy. <laughs> no, not Burt Lancaster. No, Burt Lancaster so. is not a hairy guy. Oh, well, I just saw a picture of him where he was really hairy. Which where is I, I want in the cover of the Swimmer VHS. No, he was not hairy in that. <laughs> he was. You're crazy. He was no. Cover, he he was. had no hair whatsoever. He was. I will anyway. show it to me right now. All right. Stop the video and show. I mean the podcast and show it to me. All right, Burt Bert Lancaster's not that hairy. <laughs> I saw one VHS cover. Proven. Proven. Burt Lancaster was not hairy. But anyway, Vermin was hairy. He had a lot of, I mean, you know, typical manly hair. It's not outrageously hairsuit. But he was hairy. And everybody else in the entire gang had no hair on their chest. He was the only one. So that kind of created kind of like a, a gross kind of bulgy, sweaty kind of masculinity. He's also the horny one. So that adds to it. Good point. I forgot yeah. about that. He's always going, ooh, ah, look at her, woo. Mm-hmm. And he pulls the warriors into, well, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. I just had a thought. If you and the listeners would be so gracious as to let me work this one out. Yeah. If you remember in the Greek myths, mm-hmm. not, I mean, the Greek myths and plays, such as Oedipus Rex, the key dramatic mechanism was the fact that the intrinsic 
nature of the protagonist was that protagonist's downfall. For example, in Oedipus Rex, his pride was the thing that led to his downfall. Vermin in The Warriors, his horniness almost led to his downfall. Yeah. Right? Except for Swan, the leader, well, yeah. who is flawless. Some of them come out, well, the heroes come out on top, but mm-hmm. like... Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's an incredibly allegorical movie. Mm-hmm. And I do think it was very well thought out. Mm-hmm. Okay, go on. So Vermin, who's hairy. Yeah. And horny. And horny. <laughs> at one point in the film, as they're trying to bop back to Coney, or the big CI, they meet a group of lascivious, luscious young women known as the Lizzies. The Lizzies. Not the Lizzies. Yeah, yeah, but the Lizzies. Lizzies. Who invite them back to their clubhouse or whatever to hang right. out while all I, their dudes are in New, in the in the Bronx at the big meeting. Basically, there are many promises in their eyes and in their... Wink, wink. Wink, wink. So they go back and it is Vermin's libido. Okay, I forgot to say. Spoilers. Spoilers. This whole podcast is going to be full of spoilers. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. Do not listen to this if you do not like spoilers. We should make a warning, and I can just put it at the beginning of any... Do that. ...movie podcast or whatever where we talk about it a lot. Do it. Okay, we'll do it. I love that. Okay. So, draws them into the clubhouse trap. The spider web, if you will. (laughs) The trap is snapped. But the issue is, is that... He was so horny he couldn't see it coming. Whereas there was another character. Rembrandt. Rembrandt, who did see it. Now we're going to switch from Vermin because we've said enough about him. Mm-hmm. To Rembrandt. Another member of the Warriors. Marcelino was his real name. Sanchez, yes. Beautiful, sweet. He was the young. young. He was the baby of the of the club. Of, at least of the group who went to the conclave with Cyrus. He um, was known as Rembrandt because his job was to do the tagging. He's the artist, yeah. Um, he has the... The can of red spray paint, and that's his main weapon. It's his, uh, he, he makes sure that everyone knows that the warriors were there at this right. historic event. I guess that's the point of graffiti. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not somebody who would ever paint on anything, so I don't know. I'm not a Kilroy was here kind of gal. <laughs> but even back to the ancient Romans, and probably even before, mm-hmm. ancient Egyptians, people wanted the fame of uh, marking the walls. In ancient Egypt, on the pyramids, Mark things like such and such gang was here. Oh wow! You know, so their group, the working group, marked they were there. This labor group was here. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Our gr- our, cool. our club. So here's a little history. At the time in the 70s when I was young, that's when graffiti became really the thing. I mean, it had been happening before. It had been happening on the streets before. I'm sure. Always, yeah. 60s and 70s was when it became like a thing that people began noticing that people began talking about and that it became so important to the identity of people on the street and then became noticed by the art community blah 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 okay i'm not going to talk about jean jean michel basquiat basquiat even though he's amazing and something really worth talking about and i'm going to make you watch the documentary and then we will talk about him because fantastic shit okay but okay that is that is marcelino now marcelino was gay in real life. And we know this from the extras in the documentary. And also the young actor who played him, Marcelino, died of AIDS. Mm. And in the film, they never say he was gay. He just simply stands outside, which a lot of gay people did. They stood outside of society and they observed because that was the position they were forced into by not being accepted, right? So he 
is accepted into the warrior's gang, yeah. yet at the same time he stands outside. He observes what everyone else is doing and he records it. And so when the Lizzie's draw him in, draw the uh, uh, Vermin and Cochise is the other get drawn in, to the the sexual promises, promises and... of the Lizzie's, Marcelino, a.k.a. Rembrandt, yep. does not get drawn in. He is warning, don't do this, don't do this. And he's always kind of standing off the side watching, seeing what's going on, looking at the details. And he's the, he's the one who warns them, saves their lives. So he's another character of the Warriors. We've got the Nine. Yep. I guess we should also talk about Cleon. Cleon is the leader. His myth, mythological... Um, well, not myth, historical. His historical counterpart is the general, the Spartan general, Clearchus. Is that yeah. what you read it? Yeah, Clearchus, who was um, actually one of the senior officers of the Spartans in this 10,000 group who got stuck in the middle of Persia. And in the film... Clearch- uh, Cleon, Clearchus, ends up being surrounded by the gang that supported Cyrus and apparently was killed. Yeah. We don't know for sure, but... He's scapegoated and he goes to check out what happened to Cyrus and then he get, yeah he gets surrounded. Later on, somebody says, oh, the, the police probably got him. Um, well, we don't know because yeah. they, he's probably dead. Probably. And then the rest of the warriors take off. So now we've got eight. Right. So, so far we've talked about Vermin. We've talked about Rembrandt. Um, Rembrandt. And so basically we're kind of coming up from the bat- bottom. If we, if we look at a caste system, yeah, these two people were sort and, and Cochise, who really, he doesn't really do much. Yeah. And then there's... He's um, there. He's there for aesthetics. He has a Native American name. He has a Native American headdress. But he's, he, a, he's, he's an African American. Yeah. yeah. So that's an interesting thing. Yeah. And then the, who was the other one that you told me about who was sort of... Fox. Is that No, Fox? no. The other one. No. The one with the mushroom hair. Oh, yeah, yeah. Snow. Snow. And then there's Snow, and he's another black uh, member of the group, and he, he has a fair number of lines, mm-hmm. but he, you know, he's, he's not really particularly... Yeah, he's not... He, he's just kind of always there supporting. Individual. Yeah. yeah, he's there supporting. He's a solid member of, the, of mm-hmm. the group. And that's four so far, right? Right. And then we've got Fox. And Fox is an interesting character. He's, he's um, a character who initially has a fair amount to say. He works with uh, Swan, mm-hmm. who is the lead, who ends up, like, as I said before, uh, the corollary, corollary to Xenophon. But in the middle of the movie... Yeah. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. He dies. He, oh, it's an awesome scene. He's kind of the only character that dies explicitly. Yeah. Yeah. He is wrestling with a police officer. On a subway platform. On a subway platform. And the officer, they blah, blah, blah. The officer pushes him off and he falls over onto the third rail in front of a a subway train. We know he's dead. And what's so interesting is that what I read Mm. is that Walter Hill, the director, was having trouble with this actor. He just wasn't cooperative and he's having such trouble with him. That he he felt bad, yeah. but he had to kill him off. Wow! <laughs> to get the to get him off the picture. Gotcha. <laughs> Which is actually helps because you need more stakes. Uh, you need the stakes to know these guys might not make it. And it's also interesting that it's not gang on gang violence that happens. It's an accident ostensibly, but still, it's like this gang and police officer, gang member mm-hmm. and police officer dynamic when he gets thrown into the path of the subway. Right. That's true. Yeah. Now, there are a lot of times where they do try to kill them, yeah. but it, it doesn't happen. And then there is... Oh, wait. Let oh, me, let me go stop ahead. you. Yeah. So, Fox, he has this, like, 
really um, curly hair. Would you say that he's coded as Jewish? Like, is he read as Jewish to you? Well, I never thought of that. Yeah. Um, it's possible that... Well, and the reason we, we should that, go back is yeah. to say that. Yeah, I know so where you're going. So the reason that we're bringing this up is going. that this movie is very diverse in mm-hmm. its cast in terms of ethnicity. Mm-hmm. There are Latinos and black people and some Asians in the background and white actors. And the white actors have most of the leads, but it's still like... Very curated, almost. And um, gay. And gay, yeah. There, There's a lot of queer coding, obviously. The Lizzie's and um, Rembrandt and other representatives, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's almost, I don't know if it was ahead of its time or just on the very cutting edge or, like, very, you know, willing. Transgressive. They're trying to be transgressive. To be. Yeah. Oh, can I go back and yeah. say that when we say the Lizzie's and the, the Lizzie's and, you know, they're kind of indicating, it's not just the name. Yeah. It's, it's only women. And that the women in this clubhouse are dancing together in a very sexual manner. Yeah, it's pretty sapphic. They make it pretty obvious that there is a sexual connection between these women. Yeah. Okay, so I just wanted to say that. Very much so, yeah. And so... That the that the males coming in are, except for Rembrandt... Yeah, just blind. ...are oblivious to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, like, I don't know if this story has other elements of other myths and maybe it has a little bit of influence from the odyssey etc but like i would say they're almost the sirens you know who like lure the Mm -hmm, men in mm -hmm. and are ready to like wreck them on the rocks uh, yeah yeah and they just happen to use that yeah and the furies the baseball furies i don't know Uh if that rings no i agree totally in, in addition in the anabasis socrates makes a short appearance and his appearance it relates to the Oracle of Delphi, which, again, don't want to, you know, I, I know what it is, but I, I can't assume that everybody Go for it, yeah. But the Oracle of Delphi was really the main oracle. Uh, there are many oracles. The main oracle. And the oracle was about telling the future, saying what the gods wanted, giving the gods advice to mortals and telling them. And the Oracle of Delphi was, was the main one. I won't go into details about it. I can talk about the feminism. There's a whole thing about feminism and um, how that was used with women and men and female power and blah, blah, blah. Sure, virginity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all kinds of stuff to talk about with the Greek Oracle stuff. Delphi. Fantastic. Maybe we'll read up on that. And we'll yeah, do we a, should. We'll do That'd something cool. for you on that. That would be fun. Very rich. But this is, I okay, one of the reasons I love the Warriors is it's very creative. It really is artists, writer, director, actors, all these people coming together and creating something that is so modern at the time in 1979, let me tell you. I know because I was there. And it's still modern. Modern and clever, but rich, yet genre. Yeah. You know, so it has that scrappy, you know, so you don't don't have to know any of this shit to love it because it's like genre. Yeah. I love it. Anyway. So Oracle at Delphi was foretelling the future, saying what's happening from the gods. In the film, the Oracle of Delphi also appears. The Oracle of Delphi appears in the form of an actress named Lynn Thingpin, who I have kind of an obsession about. Oh, yeah? She died pretty young. She was in her 40s, I think, when she died. I'd seen her in several things. But Lynn Thingpin... She's got incredible lips. Has is all I the can say. lips exactly? <laughs> well, she she had a a normal, decent looking face that was attractive in its interestingness. Hmm. She was like a character actress. 
but she had the, these lips and 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 of course the director saw this that were so expressive when they spoke the way they formed the words was almost like creating a reality a piece of a little piece of art that just puffed from her lips as she spoke they were yeah. beautiful i feel it yeah it was beautiful to watch and the way walter hill used this ability of her mm-hmm. of her or her natural characteristic was in the film when we are um getting speeches or prognostications from lynn thingpin who really is never named she's just simply the dj she's a radio dj radio dj you see a microphone and you see lips mm-hmm. and you see a little bit of a nose and the speaking everything she speaks has a load of either irony threat menace because we only see the movement and the shape of her lips as she speaks the words. Yeah. She's kind of the mouthpiece for the the major gang, Cyrus's gang. And so she sends out notifications like, Warriors, you've been canceled. Like, y'all out there, here's a song for you. And it's a, they're putting a hit on the Warriors and she'll play a hit song. But it's that shape of her lips that is the funnel for yeah. this, this truth. And the main gang, the Riffs, who Osiris was a member of, they're sort of the, they sort of are the Olympus of the gods. They're sort mm-hmm. of the top gang. And so she's funneling their truth because they rule the streets. They're saying how it's going to be. And the leader, he also, they cultivate this kind of otherworldly image, or he's second in command, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he's got, he's this like black dude with really short hair and these black aviators and this like black, like kimono style rap that's all fantastic like and, oh so beautiful and sparkly and he just comes in and he's so commanding and he never takes his glasses off neither day like it's, it's really just the style that they cultivate really conveys a lot it's cool yeah it is okay i don't want to get off on you know too far afield on this so for our listeners because we love you we're taking you and we're raveling you back <laughs> to the main line again right okay we've got oracle of delphi we've got olympus okay we're going back to the characters in the uh, gang of Central the Central gang. Right. Yeah. So who took us we there? We talked about Rembrandt, Vermin, Snow, That's Cochise. You're good. You're good. <laughs> we talked about Fox. Um, oh, Fox is what led us to the Oracle of Delphi. Yes. So next. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yay, yeah. Yay, we can check my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um. The other thing I will oh. say about Fox is that just that all these names, like some of them, like Cleon is obviously stretches back to the name Clearchus and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Xenophon Swan, maybe. Um, but also like his characteristics, he's noble. He's got this beautiful grace to him. And like, mm-hmm. so the, all the names are kind of allegorical. Fox, he's clever. He manages negotiations. He's the one they pull in to like right. t- talk to other gangs and stuff. So now my favorite. My favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ajax. <laughs> and Ajax, I don't know if you know this, but Ajax in ancient myth, he was, he was sort of a big dumb warrior. Yeah. He was tough. He was the best warrior. He was huge. He would, could fight. He would never stop. But he wasn't particularly... Um, he was not a philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> he was not particularly subtle in not any manner whatsoever. <laughs> so Ajax is played by an actor that a lot of people will know is James Remar. And James Remar, for example, he one of his big roles was he played the father of Dexter on the um, TV series Dexter. So he's probably the one out of this entire film 
who really made it. Who had the best, had the best career. And he's always played character actors. He's always played kind of secondary roles. Um, I love James. Now, I hated James Remar the first time I saw it. He was my least favorite character. Hated him. Yeah, yeah. But then I watched it when I was younger, like I said, about 10 times. And then I didn't see it again for 20 years. And then I saw it again and I went, oh, I love him. He's so funny. He's so energetic. His acting is really actually pretty good for... He's playing to this genre type. He's playing to his character. And then I read an article about James Remar, who, when he auditioned for this role, he came in and he played it. And there's a scene in it where he is handcuffed to a park bench. It's going to be the end of him. He's going to be arrested, go to jail. And he gets upset and he's screaming and he wants to, you know, be let free. And that was the one of the scenes that he did in the audition. And I guess they handcuff him to the table in the room. A heavy table. A heavy table. And he's like, come on, let me out of here. And he, and he had so much energy that he yanked. I mean, this is a heavy table. And he yanked the table across the room and he actually scared the uh, people who were doing the auditions, we got the role. Nice. <laughs> and you can see this in, this, in yeah. this scene. But Ajax basically is a homophobe, a misogynist. He's an asshole. He's violent. Volatile. Yeah. Volatile. But... Anti-authority, oh, et cetera, but, et cetera. But he really adds to... Unfortunately, he leaves about... What about two, two-thirds? Two-thirds of the way through the film, he gets arrested and he's gone. He really adds to it. He always says the funniest things. And one of the things that you will learn from the Warriors that Ajax will really teach you is that if you stick a baseball bat up someone's ass, you can turn them into a popsicle. <laughs> yeah, I think he uses a variation on that line. We're talking about like a Warriors drinking game while we're in the theater and we're like, okay, anytime he says the F word. F-A-G. Yeah. And anytime that he references sticking something up someone's ass, you drink and that's like most of what you need. And every time he uses corollary terms that really intend to indicate homosexuality, mm-hmm. meaning aka wimp, mm-hmm. drink. Yeah, you'll be drunk. And the thing is that, like, what or like what we're drawing out is that this film was very aware, like, mm-hmm. sort of um, aware of uh, diversity in terms of sexuality and race and everything. And so this character, he's not, like, written just bluntly. At, and you're not, like, going to look at it and say, oh, this is a product of its time that this character mm-hmm. is right. misogynistic or whatever. It's there for a purpose. And I know Every- because we love film and we want to dissect it, we're going to delve into that and say that there are deeper psychological implications for what he's saying, that he's not just, like, a character that you're meant to hate. Right, and and his homophobia and misogyny don't resonate yeah. with the other characters. Right. He's really kind of the odd man out in his group. The reason he's in the group is because he's Ajax. He kicks ass. So even though he, ha- he has all this bluster and says all these nasty things, when it comes down to it, he's there. He's winning. He's fighting. He's, he's, he's loyal. He's, he's yeah, a to an war- extent. Yeah. yeah, well, to his group. Yeah, he yeah. absolutely is. He's a warrior. He's really, of all the warriors, he's the true actual warrior. And these other components of him don't resonate with anyone else in the group. Even though they indicate that, the, oh yeah, there's misogyny there. None of them really are misogynist, actually. Right. <laughs> even though there's... They keep a careful eye to making sure, even in this time, they're almost PC, except for Ajax. And like, yeah. Right. And there's no homo... And you don't see any homophobia or any, Everyone's anything. very protective of Rembrandt. Yeah, they love Rembrandt. He's the young guy yeah. and they're they're fine with him. And you don't hear anything else like the F word or anything else like that said by anybody else. Only Ajax. But Ajax is there because he's an ass-kicking warrior. Mm-hmm. He truly is. And um, 
he comes to his demise. Now, this is where I would say the siren mm, is. Yeah. Not the, le- not well, maybe the Lizzie's. But I think the more direct corollary is there's a scene where they're going through Central Park at night. And there's a, a woman. They're being pursued by the baseball furies, our fave. There's a woman sitting on a bench, just sitting there very... She's kind of loose. Yeah. She's kind of like back. And uh, Ajax is enticed by her. He wants sexual congress with her. And he goes up. And she's the one who invites him to sit down with her, who invites him to show her how he likes to play with the girls. Mm-hmm. So she's inviting him to sexuality just like the sirens. And he can't resist because Ajax really is pretty. Uh, I mean, I'm not trying to apologize for him, but he is pretty basic. And he jumps on her. And basically what it is is she is an undercover cop who's in the park trying to catch, you know, rapists and molesters and robbers and so forth. Total entrapment. Okay, speaking as a lawyer, total entrapment. He would totally get off because she invited him to come and touch her, you know. So maybe he got too rough and I don't, I'm not okay with that, but it was not assault because she invited him for the purpose of arresting him. Right. So anyway, that scene is much more like the siren, but no one stops his ears. That's what would have happened to Odysseus had the sailors not tied him to the mast. Am I speaking too much, assuming that people know these myths? You can go on with that. Because these myths are craziness. You can go on with that. Okay. If Odysseus hadn't had sailors to tie him to the mast and stop his ears so he could not hear the sirens to be drawn onto the rocks of destruction from his ship, this is what would have happened. Mm -hmm. This is what happened to Ajax. He got even though this didn't happen in the myth to the actual Ajax. But he's pulled on to the rocks of destruction by this siren. Okay, so if we're saying that the character's greatest vice or whatever is their greatest downfall, what's Ajax's downfall? Because I wouldn't necessarily say it's horniness. Impulsivity. Okay. He's actually so impulsive, and you see this every time. He wants to, come on, let's not stand here and watch these guys go by and wait and calculate. Let's just run out there. I'm I'm sick of this waiting. He says that earlier. I'm sick of this chicken shit waiting. He's totally a man of action and impulse. And so this woman who he doesn't think about, How's this woman just sitting on this bench who's like going, come here, big boy. What's, you know, he doesn't even think. And even though he's warned by his compatriots, oh, come on, let's keep going. They didn't tell him that it would be a problem, but they said, come on, let's go. We got to go meet the other people. No, no, I want to have some exercise, as he Mm -hmm. said. I I think it's his impulsive, his thoughtlessness and his impulsiveness. I would say that it's some of that, Mm -hmm. but it's also maybe his insecurity, his need to fulfill something that's a masculinity Mm -hmm. that he doesn't feel secure in. Mm-hmm. One thing that we were talking about this last time is that these all actors, they're all mature men. Like, they look maybe 25 on average. To 30, yeah. To 30, yeah. But, you know, there's this this scene where they talk about their caseworker, which may youth or may worker. not... Youth worker, which may or may not be true. And also gangs are historically very youthful, at least at the bottom. And so they, they may be even, like, between 16 and 18, like, pretty young mm-hmm. youth, uh, which, you know, this entrapment thing with the whole cop lady is extra complicated by the fact that Ajax might be supposed to be 16, under 18... Um, but I would say basically that the sense that you get from the film about his, uh, homophobic remarks and like sort of the stuff he says that just the, the pure, like sort of aggressive masculinity is that he's, he might have the goods as far as being able to fight, but you mentioned maybe he doesn't believe in his own masculinity. Right. And so he has to cover it up by calling everybody else like uh, a wimp. This is probably because I love Ajax and because I love the actor James Remar. Yeah. Okay, here's my little Freudian take mm. on him. Is he's probably the more sensitive, maybe even artistic, hmm. 
kind of character. And his daddy did not like him to have feelings. Yeah. Kicked his ass and modeled, probably beat his mother up too, and showed this is what a man is. That's not naturally his bent. Yeah, he's tough. He can fight. And it's interesting that he's willing to protect, to protect like a man should, the weaker members of his his cohort, tribe, grab, yeah. cohort, right, or whatever. So there's that dissonance where he's got to show he's like his dad. He's tough. He's hard. He, whereas in reality, he's probably much more of a protector. So this dissonance shows up in this character. So that's, that's where I would go with it. So Ajax, that's our take anyway. So anyway, my fave. Yeah. <laughs> now, when I first watched the film, Swan was my fave. Okay. When I first watched the film, actually, I thought Ajax was the hottest, but I like... Oh, he's so hot. But he's such a shit that I was yeah, like, I know. it's fine. <laughs> exactly. I'm not I, into it. I know, it's like barely, I could, ha- I could barely handle him when I first saw it. Yeah. Now I love him. Yeah. And I love every, <laughs> every bad word he says, you know. <laughs> but yeah, when I first watched it, it was Swan. Uh, Michael Beck is the actor and he's very handsome. He's blonde, tall, and he knows how to stand in a certain sort of classic artistic way where he stands almost like... His right shoulder or left shoulder is slightly tilted toward the camera, and then his head turns over that shoulder just a little bit mm-hmm. so that he looks like he's in a very classic pose. Yeah, he looks like a Greek statue. He really does. And he's one of those ones who doesn't wear a shirt under his yeah, vest. Yeah, totally hairless. Too. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, and his character, like I said, he's kind of, his name is Swan. He definitely exemplifies like being dignified, um, being stoic, mm-hmm. being graceful, etc. Yet he is a man outside his group. He's, he's somebody that you go, I bet that guy's read a book. Yeah, exactly. He exudes like more intellect. You get this sense from a few lines he says that he's like, this isn't really my place. I'm moving on to bigger and better things. I want to see the world. This niche is too small for me kind of thing. Right. Or the violence and the poverty. I want something more than this in my life. And he has the, I don't know, I guess the hedonistic attitude of take what I can get today, drinking drugs, women, blah, 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 blah. He's sort of held himself apart from that because he doesn't know what to do, but he knows there's something better, which is why he ends up being war chief, basically second in command in the gang of the warriors because he's got the cool head. He's got the gimlet eye. He's the one who can control himself. Yeah, he doesn't have these vices. So he and Ajax end up being sort of the, the antitheses of each other. And Ajax is the one who falters and falls because he ends up being arrested. Oh, I'm sorry, gang. I need to go back to that scene where we're talking about Ajax going crazy and getting arrested and the siren who pulls him in. The actual actress who plays that siren is Mercedes Rule, who ends up later becoming an Academy Award-winning actress. Nice. So she's the most actually famous person in this film. Wow. Okay. Going back to Ajax and uh, versus uh, Swan. Swan. They're at odds, and Ajax is combating his authority and sort of challenging, like, why are you war chief? Why couldn't I be war chief? But you get the sense that he wouldn't actually be able to lead because he can't really lead himself. Yeah. He'd be like, let's run screaming down the hill. Wah! <laughs> yeah. He doesn't have any strategy. And so we've got the character of Swan, and then later they're joined. Um, they go through this neighborhood. They throw a woman into it. Yes. Gotta, gotta have a woman. They're, yeah, you're like, let's see some leg. Um, well, actually, and they, they pick a great woman for it, too. Yeah. There, uh, there's a scene where um, uh, appears a woman named Mercy, mm-hmm. which I think is a very interesting name. I think so, too. Um, and she's Latina, 
and she lives in this yeah, neighborhood right. that's sort of guided by this mostly Latino gang called the Orphans. Um, but you get the sense through their conversation that they're very low tier. And Mercy comes out, and maybe she's the sister of the the leader of the gang, and she's kind of mocking them and trying to egg them on to fight and everything. And and she ends up following the warriors, right? And she basically she sees for the first time. Maybe not the first time, but it's hard to say because remember back, this is back in the 70s. No internet. Right. <laughs> Only TV, which is all white, you know, totally whitewashed. A few films. And in New York and in a lot of cities at that time, you stayed in your neighborhood. You know, you got a job in your neighborhood. You didn't go somewhere. You didn't see other kinds of people. So let's say for the first time she walks out and she sees Swan. <laughs> oh my God, Swan. This... Tall, blonde, gorgeous, manly. He's totally... Very interesting thing about Swan Mm -hmm. is he is the stereotypical pattern of a man from the 1940s. Mm. Not the 1970s. Not when people are getting in touch with their feelings. Swan, he's stoic. He's protective. He's a man who has his own own code. He's the best version. Yeah. Yeah. He's like either from the Old West yeah. or from the 1940s. kind of He's kind of a noir hero, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Or, or a Greek stoic. Yeah. You know? And here comes Mercy, and she sees him when she's been with all of these guys who are path- kind of pathetic in terms mm-hmm. of their... They have no hope. There's no way forward for them. And, of course, you know, if we look at sociologically, it's not their fault that there's no way forward for all of them. Yeah, they, because, they're living in poverty. Right, yeah. right. But here's this guy... And I think that she looks at him, not only is he gorgeous. I mean, that's enough reason. Hello. (laughs) But but you look at him and you go, this is a guy who on some level rejects the status quo and is, he's going to step out. He's going to break out of this norm that we all know, that we don't know anything else then. And he's into this unknown world of maybe there's a possibility of a different kind of life, a better life. And she sees that and she's got, I want that. I want him because that's what I want in my life. And you don't necessarily pick that up immediately. She kind of follows them, makes fun of them, and then ends up chasing them. Uh, And she'd swan end up alone together. And obviously she's attracted to him. But what she really is, is she's just very emotional. And even though she's had like obviously hard times in her life, she's not guarded. She's kind of like Mm -hmm. really raw in Mm -hmm. a way. And I think that that's the counter to Swan. And so maybe he doesn't have a downfall, but he has his opposite in Mercy, mm-hmm. where she she is that raw emotion. Even though he has ambition, it doesn't have stakes until he meets her. That's true. And he, she also offers to herself herself to him sexually. And the way I would read it is that women, especially at that time, because she's probably close to my age at that yeah. time, were trained and acculturated to understand that, that their sexual availability was the coin of the realm for them at that time. And once that disappeared, once people weren't interested in having sex in them anymore, they had no more coin of the realm. Mm-hmm. She was offering him what she had been trained to believe was the most valuable thing that she had. Now, she offers it in, in the guise of, oh, I just want to have fun. I want to have some sex. I, I want to uh, have forgetfulness from the terribleness of my life. But really what she's offering him is saying, this is what I have. This is the best thing that I have. Because mm-hmm. she, she didn't see her intellect, her character, anything else about her as having value. And so it's very interesting the way that plays out. Because Swan... He doesn't want to be pulled into that mentality because he's been struggling to get out of it. And he's almost there. And then this this whole thing erupts. Everyone's after them. And mm-hmm. suddenly his 
options are more limited or could be he could gone. be dead he could be dead and so they they struggle between the two of them there's some wonderful scenes together and there's a yeah. scene in the subway where they kiss and apparently i read this is that they they have this wonderful kiss and then suddenly a subway train whizzes by on the other side of the wall from where they are and there's this light this wonderful shimmering kind of yeah, uh, vibrating they, light that's going on behind their kiss and wind silhouetting their kiss well, that train was a real train, and it was happenstance. Walter Hill, he didn't plan it. He did That was not something that he did. It just was luck, and it's fantastic. And if that's true, it's the like, quintessence of that movie that's just beautiful. It's just so beautiful and perfect. It's simple, but there's a lot going on underneath. Because it's, it's a, the kiss is almost a struggle yeah. between the two levels of consciousness. Swan has be- become an almost, almost is breaking through into a higher level of consciousness in that I don't have to be gripped and run by the old scripts. And Mercy is totally still in it. She wants more, but she's totally in her script. So she's sticking with that kind of behavior, even though she's really more than that. Mm-hmm. And so that kiss is a grappling between those two levels of consciousness. And Swan pulls away because he will not be drawn back down into that. Just for today, let's Mm -hmm. just fuck, get what we can because the world is hopeless. On some level, Swan in his stoic, tough, unhappy in a way dance he's actually got the bigger hope and yet he's still after that you see a change in the movie it's too short it doesn't delve too far into the it's more allegorical and it doesn't dive too far into the psychological nuance of the because that's not what this is about but you do see that after that he's kind to her he's even kinder to her because mm-hmm. she's sort of revealed herself and he's mm-hmm. he's he's softened in his attitude and after that they sort of become a team or become uh aligned with each mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. Uh, when she doesn't feel that she needs to do that and he well he rejects her he yeah. rejects her advances and will not take the sexuality the sex that is offered to him which in a way mm-hmm. i think this has a lot to do with what's going on today with the um not me too movement per se but the the difficulty in men and women uh, talking about what is taking advantage and what isn't taking advantage this is kind of actually kind of a great example of that where he goes into himself and goes, this is not right. This is not, and I mean, he puts it as, this is not forwarding my goals, but it's not forwarding his goals because his goals are set as having a better life and being a better person. So she then sees that because he didn't take what was offered as a way to trust him because he's not going to take something based on, oh, I'm just trying, I'm offering this. Selfish, yeah. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm offering this because I want to get you to like me. I'm offering this because I'm trying to get ahead. I'm offering this because I'm trying to get cerise for my pain. And he's going, no, it's got to be for the best reason. And so it created this trust between them. And what's great, what I love it, the movie is not about this. Yeah. The movie just not hit this hard. No. The movie barely glosses over this. And I only picked this kind of shit up because I've we've, seen it we've several times. We've both seen it several more times. than 10 times. <laughs> and then you begin to pick up these things. And that's yeah. why the movie is so good. It's got these levels and these interpretations that you can create that you can't, that you don't necessarily see in the first view. But for those of you who have never seen it, the first viewing is shitloads of fun. It's fucking brilliant. And now that we've told you all these things, you'll be able to see it the first time. And so, I mean, there's that relationship. I think the one thing we haven't hit on are the antagonists of the whole thing. Ah! <laughs> okay, wait. Did we talk about we talked about the Oracle of Delphi? Yeah, and Lin Thingping. Yeah, but okay. we didn't get to talk about how great the soundtrack is yet, which we will talk about. Okay, those are the two things that are coming up. Okay, yeah. go ahead. 
Um, so the antagonists of the whole piece, obviously the ones who assassinated Cyrus and blamed the warriors. Right. And we don't know the name of the gang. We never could figure that out. We couldn't figure it out. We tried to search it online and, and whatnot. We couldn't find it. But one of the most iconic characters and the iconic lines ah! and everything of the movie... Uh, apparently, that's what we opened that this podcast with. Yeah, apparently the character's name is Luther. He's he's the assassin. He's now, the now Luther is the name of the devil. Oh yeah, you're right. Hey, hey, I like that. Nice one. Thanks. So this gang is they're almost the leather daddy gang. Like I'm your mamacita. <laughs> you are my mamacita. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. This gang, they assassinate Cyrus, and it's really just one guy and his cronies, um, but they're kind of a leather daddy gang. They've got, like, these three-cornered leather caps and leather jackets, and they roll around in this, like, hearse, essentially. Yeah, and um, so I don't know what to say about this. I'll, I'll, you can cut this out if you want, but yeah. the outfits they wear, the leather jackets yeah. and leather vests and those hats, yeah. the, the shape of those hats, that was kind of standard in sort of gay Leather bars. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm interpreting now. Okay. Did you just yeah. say that and I didn't hear it? Leather daddy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, that's what that meant. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I, I interpreted. Okay. And then the main guy, Luther, he doesn't really dress like that. He has, like, some claws wrapped around his head, and he's got, like, these really red eyes and stuff. Played, played by the awesome actor David Patrick Kelly. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that is kind of the vibe that I got. And maybe they were just going for an aesthetic there. I don't mm-hmm. really have a super... Uh, you can't say, yeah. ...metaphorical, yeah, like, yeah. reason that they would go for that. But they're kind, they're kind of non-entities. I mean, they make things happen because they assassinate Cyrus. Um, and then they kind of roll around town until the final scene. Mm. But the really the lead guy, he's pretty fascinating because he's so I don't know pathological. Like mm-hmm. he he just says it because it's fun. That's yeah. They ask him why did you do it, and he's like, I was looking for some fun, man. No, I'm having fun. Yeah, I'm just having fun. Now, a couple things I'd like to say. Luther, as kind of a name used for the devil, we have here potentially yeah a clash between the pre-Christian era of mm. the the history. Of the Persian Wars, Xenophon, da da da, yeah. bang with Ajax, bang, Cleon, bang up against Luther, the devil, the Christian devil. Ooh, I like that. Isn't that good? Yeah, that's really good. I just thought of that. Nice. Thank you. And he's he's there to be unsettling. He's there just influencing behind the scenes. He's really just a loose cannon. Uh, there's some great scenes with him. He's always talking on the phone to someone, and you're like, who is it? And my mom and I have this joke that it's his mom that he's talking to. He's <laughs> like, yeah, dusted that guy. <laughs> yeah. So if you watch this, when he's talking on the phone, just think of his mother being on the other end. Yeah. Because you never know who it is. Yeah. I think it's his mother. I agree. <laughs> I love that. Uh, he has. He does have kind of like almost an infantilized, really teary, creepy vibe. Oh, he's so creepy. And the actor who did it, He's so fantastic. He's in a bunch of other things. But what I thought was so interesting is, again, when I heard, I think it was on the DVD extras I heard this. He was uh, a young actor in New York at the time, as were all of them. And none of them were known. And so he got hired for this job. And he lived in this, might have been in Brooklyn at the time, a cheap place to live. So not, not, not necessarily great. So he lived in this apartment. Apparently, oh, we should talk about the best scene. Oh, yeah, for sure. We'll come back to that, though. Okay, I don't want to talk about this because... This relates to the best scene, so we should oh. say the best scene first. Okay. So the very, the best scene, I think a lot of people have heard of this scene. At the end, the bad guys in their hearse are coming to get the warriors, and the warriors have made it to their home turf. They're on Coney Island, but they're being, in, 
invaded nonetheless by these bad guys. And they come through, and all of a sudden you hear this this kind of clinking sound, and you hear what we opened the podcast with. Warriors, come out to play! And you hear bing, bing, bing. And basically, then they show you the late Luther, the leader of this group, with three bottles on his fingers, and he's tapping them together, creating this kind of bunk. Bouncing. Bouncing like. kind of clicking sound. Yeah. And so what was so funny is that uh, on the DVD extras, David Patrick Kelly, who was that actor, he got that because apparently he said there was some neighbor or somebody in his neighborhood who was <laughs> harassing <Brooklyn. laughs> him, who was harassing him and, yeah. and would do that. Not warriors would come out to play, but would do the bottle thing yeah. to him to scare him and was harassing him. So he used that in the film. Wow. That's th- brilliant. Yeah, Because who would think of that? And so he used that, and I think that's brilliant because it's 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 a it's an icon, I think. Oh, in film. totally! It's such an icon. I hear that reference everywhere. Do you? Yeah, totally. Um, not everywhere. Okay, not everywhere, but not at work. All right, not <laughs> everywhere, but a lot of places. I not have. in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> not the on the playground, but. Um, uh, <laughs> Okay. You're just imagining like the small children on yes. the floor, like using glass at, at the at the at the at the Wallingford playground where we where we live on the, the slides. Moms, yeah, the moms at the Wallingford playground. Like, I'm sorry. Um, go ahead. <laughs> come out to play. <laughs> we'll mess you up. We're gonna waste you. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, it's. I don't know. It's such an iconic scene, and it's. I don't know. It's so interesting to me because the movie is really about the harrowing journey. Mm-hmm. And it's not at all about this, like, overarchingly scary gang that has been waiting for them the whole time or that is in control. Well, yeah, but but the thing is, is that at the end of the journey, yeah, you come to the journey, you come home, and there is the enemy mm-hmm. waiting for you mm-hmm. at home. So it's still, the, it's the capper to the journey. Yeah. And it's also the capper to the validation of the warriors as being... Special, yeah. That special, the heroicness, heroism. Thank you very much. Okay, that's that out. the word. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> heroism. you. Heroism. Heroism. Yeah. No, you're right. It's just it's interesting heroism. to me because uh, <laughs> it's interesting to me because so many movies that we have formulated, especially like I don't know Disney movies, for example, have like one overarching villain who. Uh, is kind of controlling the bad events, and I don't really feel like that's the case. It's about it's really a movie that's about the journey and the process. Well, yeah, but I don't agree with that either because the the bad gang Luther, because everything flows from him. He's the one who kills Cyrus. Yeah. He's the one who tells the lie, and that lie that he tells is supported throughout, creates all of the events that occur. Yeah. So it isn't, I mean, yes, it's but about their journey. But he's not in control the whole time. Well, he thing. is. Well, he is because he he's the one who told the lie. No, I don't think so. Oh, well, forget it. No, I, <laughs> I agree with you that the events ensue sort of following. Yes, they ensue. They ensue. Yeah, but that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying usually or in, yeah, I don't know, Star Wars, etc., all the events are like directed by like somebody who's this villain that's in control who has ears and eyes everywhere, and he doesn't have that. They're just kind of rolling around in their hearse the whole time. But okay, it, it does. But it shows extra exemplifies. Stop it, Jesus! I'm talking here. <laughs> sorry. This is our podcast. Show <laughs> me some respect. <laughs> Jesus. 
Jesus. <laughs> I am. I am. I'm just drinking some tangerine juice. <laughs> so it exemplifies the damage that like a an unsupportive rumor can do. Mm-hmm. And they're out for them the whole time. It's true, but like it's all about the journey and the events that happen. It's not about some overarching villain controlling the whole thing. Okay, I I'll, I'll agree with you on that, but I don't think that that's that unique. I don't know that it's that unique, but I think it's in this type of movie. I find it a little bit unusual, and I like it. Okay, I, I think it gives yeah. it kind of a different structure. It gives it more of an uh, Odyssey type structure than it does a Disney type structure. Okay, say. well, well, Disney. Pfft. Okay, I, fine. I'm fine with that. I think there's a lot of art. I also find it interesting that the villain is so pathetic. Because he's very pathetic the whole time. Yeah. He's so whiny. Yeah. You know, why do these guys follow him except that he's, like, more off the hinge than the yeah. rest of them? And he's willing to transgress well, I th- I think I think it's more about structure and that the, when you uh, live in a structure, as we all do, in a stru- corporate structure, whatever, if somebody just gets named they get put into a seat of authority and it's the seat of authority that carries the weight Mm. not the person Mm -hmm. so he got put into this whatever if he's war chief or whatever he is that he's in that seat of authority and what he says therefore like the pope Mm -hmm. therefore carries authority not the person you know so they're not looking at the person and eventually the person has to be so bad or the succession of persons has to be so bad that finally people kick them out and put a new one in but the it's the mark of authority but i guess i've just seen a lot more film and a lot it doesn't it's not that unusual to me but i think it's great i mean it's fantastic i'm I'm just making a point because it stands out in this movie to me okay um click cling yeah, I don't know. I find it interesting. I think that he is so obviously kind of powerless except for, like you said, the seat of his authority or the trappings mm. of his authority. Right. Um, right. He has a gun or whatever. And, like, everybody... He's more willing to be loud. He's more willing mm-hmm. to be obnoxious and, like, because he's, whatever. Because he is shielded. This is what then privilege is all about. His gang. Yeah. This is what privilege is all about. Yeah. Privilege is really people... Who are put into a, a slot or a seat or a place that is de- demarked with, okay, you have this, 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 and this, and this, and this is what you're allowed. It's like working in a corporation where management, they get to blah, 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 and they get to blah, 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 and you're the worker and you only get da, da, da. And so it's the defining of the place. And I think that that's what he's operating out of. He's defined in a certain place. His mama is the is his the mom real gang is really leader. yeah. Well, they're afraid of his mom. <laughs> yeah, his mom is the gang leader. That's what it is. Okay, she'll kick his All ass. All right, my whole like thing is is solved now. Yeah, she's the leader of the gang, obviously. No, but I think you're touching on something that's actually systemic to the culture. Yeah, that people are in organizations are slotted into a slot, and and the organization is invested in maintaining that person no matter what shit they do because they are representing a certain slot in the organization and the organization's viability and continuance depends on the maintenance of these slots. Mm. You know what I'm saying? The hierarchy, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. I think that's why he's... I like that. I like the idea that his mom is the leader of the game. <laughs> she fucking put him there and he's a Ma whiny, Barker, yeah. volatile <laughs> acting out. Totally. Okay, so the last scene of the movie. I don't know if we need to talk about it. I don't know. Do Should we, we go on to the soundtrack? Let's go on to the soundtrack. Because I think that the end is for you. great, but, but I don't think it's it's unusual. I agree. Soundtrack, fantastic. Joe Walsh, Madonna, before she was really, really famous. Yeah. 
Who else is in there? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It doesn't it's matter. It's really great. great. I want it on vinyl. Every I, I used to have a tape of it, and I would play it in my car, because this is back in the days when you had a tape player in your car, and I played it over and over so much that it finally broke. <laughs> so good, because every song, the music itself has a rhythm that matches the rhythm of the scene, or I assume that the music came after the editing, but the editing of the scene and the music, like there's a Baseball Furies scene where the Baseball Furies gang are chasing the Warriors, and there's a uh, sort of, almost like a... Almost like what you think the sound of fury would make and as they're running mm. and it's got a, a, a vibratory sense to it and an urgency to it. Whereas then there are other ones where um, out there in the city where they're moving through and you're kind of like the panorama of the city and, you know, where's my place in the city and finding your way. And they've got music for that. And the great thing is, is that the DJ, Lynn Thingpin, who plays that part, she's sort of the master of that music for several of the songs, not all of them, where she plays a song specifically to communicate the information of the oracle to the warriors, that they're in danger, that they're forgiven, that they're whatever the case may be. It's, I mean, it's so synthy, which really adds to the sort of almost surrealist quality of the gang outfit. Yeah, and the the neon quality of the city and mm. almost even the alienation. Like, even the warriors feel like traveling away from their home into the city. Mm-hmm. Anabasis. Um, yes, exactly. That alienation. Um, I think the synth at the beginning, that mm-hmm. that title track or yeah. whatever really, like, communicates but that. But it also communicates the, the sense of the electricity that runs the subway. Totally. Totally. Yeah, and the subway is really the heart of it, which it really is. It's a, it's a perfect vehicle, so to speak, for like that kind of myth modern in modern times. Absolutely is. So we so much recommend that you watch this. Hope you enjoyed our discussion of it and that, <laughs> that it shed some light on something for you. Enjoy the Warriors, and we will be back. Bye, guys. 